So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Oh, and the quarantine goes on, but we are still managing to connect via the worldwide interweb, still managing to uh, bring some great guests in and and, uh, have some conversations about positive sobriety. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Nate, it's um, interesting because people are less busy and I'm starting to find that I can get some yeses a little quicker <laughs> from my guest from my guest list. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very helpful. Yeah, and I say, I say, are you busy next Thursday? They're like, probably not. <laughs> it's wonderful. Uh, yeah, I have been. Uh, uh, yeah, we've been booking more guests on the Pirate Monk podcast. I've been accepting. Uh, I've been uh, appearing as a guest on some other podcasts. Yeah, podcasts are booming right now. I don't know whether anybody's listening, but a lot of them are being recorded. Yeah, and I've probably done four uh, just short, uh, under 10-minute snippet interviews with various people for different things uh, that, you know, are making their way onto, you know, Facebook and the different posts because um, people are taking time to put some good content out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there we are. There's there. We can look on the bright side of this. Sure. <laughs> it says week five or whatever. We're <laughs> well, brother, I'm sorry. We're a little late getting started today because I had to, I had to make a trip up into Nashville to visit a surgeon. Uh, this, is so, uh, yeah. this is so disappointing to me, David. I have now reached the age where it's possible for me to injure myself, it turns out, oh. just by bending over. <laughs> I, uh, I, oh, you know, I, I, uh, I was pressure washing my fence last, last, last Friday, good Friday right. and, uh, doing a lot of bending and crouching and I worked for several hours and apparently, uh, imposing some strain on my body that it is not used to, uh, resisting uh, and yeah, wound up in the emergency room. Oh, uh, Nate, I'm so yeah. sorry. Yeah, so now now I've got the prospect of some surgery and some other things, and and I'll tell you what it, I uh, I had I have not had the urge to drink f- uh, for the last couple of months. Really, it's been completely absent. Yeah, uh, but this just this reminder of my mortality. I don't know whether that was part of it. A little bit of mild discomfort after I was treated in the emergency room that was excruciatingly painful for a while, but that got fixed. Um, The thought of uh, 
drink. I didn't actually walk up to the edge and jump or even walk up to the edge and look over. I stayed away from the edge. But the thought of going to the edge, yeah. the, the thought of drinking returned yeah. to me. Yeah. Uh, which was uh, – and even that I found disappointing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, your brain doesn't forget. Um, it, it, you know, it's kind of, you know, they always say our recovery is over in the corner doing push-ups while we're doing our right. recovery work and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, or our addiction yeah, yeah. is over, you know, I, in the corner, uh, doing push-ups, but your brain doesn't forget. It's going to remind you that you don't have to feel this way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And suddenly the reasons that the good reasons I had for quitting, uh, I couldn't remember. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. But any rate, I you know I uh, I did not have not and had a chance to have a couple of conversations with friends that were a little bit helpful. It does help to kind of say this out loud, which is why I'm saying it out loud now. Yeah. Uh, and this this too shall pass. And yes, um, here's a reminder of my limitations. As a human being, uh, this is, uh, yeah, today's challenge. Mm-hmm. What's today's challenge for you, David? I'm going to go ahead. I've been a little bit personal. I'm going to ask you to be personal. I, what's your challenge today? You know, I'll tell you what. I am um, I am finding that I'm spending a lot of time during the day with clients. Thankfully, technology is made it such that, um, I can still work, um, and see, you know, a few people a day and, um, and that's good. Uh, but it's been challenging for me on the off time because I walk from the, uh, office study area here uh, to the kitchen. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. And I seem to find myself staring into the refrigerator as if, uh, you know, it's beckoning me the blue light from the inside of the, <laughs> you know, is yeah. I probably a tractor beam. Yeah. I have a tan now on my face yeah. it's from the refrigerator light. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. I do. Yeah. So, yeah. So sugar and I have started to date again. Okay. Um, <laughs> Actually, we have we're sleeping oh, together. It's, just, yeah. it's a full on affair, yeah. and uh, no, it's it is. I have I have uh, I don't I wouldn't say stress eaten. I have boredom eaten, um, and I am really trying to assess what it is that I am um, not willing to put that down and go for a walk because I'm in an area where you know I can walk safely and not. Uh, break any of the social distancing rules. And, um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I am really struggling with that. And so the pounds are coming back on, which I'm very discouraged about. And, uh, and I'm going to either go to an all sweatpants policy or, <laughs> or I'm going <laughs> to, because <laughs> nobody can see me. Who the hell cares? I mean, really, you know, it's like, I can't, you know, who's going to know. But, um, but, but I am seriously, I mean, in all seriousness, I am going to have to get down to some, uh, some real hard and fast, 
understandings of what is going on. And I, and I get it and we can all give ourselves lots of grace and breaks about the fact that we're living in an unprecedented time and blah, blah, blah. But the fact is I'm going to be damn out of clothes if I don't stop. And so that's my true confession. (laughs) (laughs) Absolve me, send me away. I, I, I will tell you what, I, I will tell you one thing, you know, we have, we have changed. I'm sure our listeners will detect a, an improvement in audio quality on the podcast because we've changed from uh, recording our podcast over Zoom to using something called Zencaster. Yeah. Now, Zoom had video. Right. And so I was doing everything on video. So I, I was seeing people and people were seeing me. Now, uh, almost all this stuff I do, I do on Zencaster. And when I talk to guys, I'm talking on the phone. I'm not using FaceTime. So I am not being seen as often. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm only shaving every other day. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I don't think I'm showering as frequently. Mm-hmm. Well, they, uh, yeah. <laughs> Why? It's, 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 <laughs> now, now I'm facing the fact that some of my self-care was just motivated by, you know, I, I want to appear. I, now, now that now that people now that I'm not interacting socially directly with people, as, as frankly, it was before. Some of my basic self-care is sliding. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I totally yeah. get that. Totally, yeah. totally get that. And you know what? Here's one thing, and I'll, I'll say this, and I know we got to get to some really good yeah, yeah, guests yeah. today that we're yeah, excited yeah. about. But have you seen those um, those exercise bands, like on Facebook or on um, uh, you know some of the <laughs> the social media sites where you know you're going to order this and do the workout at home because yeah, yeah, yeah. you know yeah. So uh-huh. so I decided. You know, this is this is going to work for me. I'm going to get really super motivated, and so I go on, and I'm going to order these things, and they're out of them. They don't even have them. Like, uh, so you can't not. Not only can you not get a, a surgical mask or you know personal protective equipment, you can't even yeah. get the dang exercise bands that we. <laughs> can, <laughs> you know, at least I have a new toy. So there you go. You know, yeah. so I am going to oh. have to just be creative and diligent and uh, find my motivation elsewhere. All right. Okay. Hey, uh, we have got some great guests. This is uh, you and I, David, we met at church. Mm -hmm. Uh, This intersection or integration of recovery and faith has been a central challenge for both of us. Right. And uh, so you have invited some folks that are going to help us to kind of explore that whole topic. Right. Uh, this this is going to be a really good conversation, especially for people who are trying to walk that line between their recovery and um, how they're experiencing their faith systems. Okay. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Uh, David, you have brought onto the show this week some folks that you met some time ago. Uh, Go ahead and introduce our guests, will you? Yeah, I absolutely uh, would love to. Uh, Teresa McBean and Scott McBean are the co-pastors of a uh, church in Richmond, Virginia, uh, named North Star Community Church. And the reason this is a really unique opportunity to talk to them 
is because this is a church built around recovery and recovering people. And they do um, all kinds of things differently than the normal evangelical paradigm model from what I can tell and gather. I've been to um, some things that they have hosted and led. They have a uh, head up an organization uh, called the National Association for Christian Recovery, which is a resource group that I think anybody could benefit from um, participating in. Uh, they bring in current research uh, people, people who have new data on recovery, uh, people with great um, new ideas and cutting edge stuff, as well as uh, really great fresh thinkers, uh, authors, speakers in the, in the, not just the area of recovery, but faith in recovery. And so, um, I wanted to get them on and talk about why they have a church that is centered around the principles of recovery and programs of recovering people, as opposed to, uh, churches that treat recovery like it's a, you know, bottom of of the brochure, fine print side item, you know, uh, it comes with potato salad, but you don't have to get it if you don't want to <laughs> kind of a yeah, thing. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. I, um, doing a lot of talking, but Scott and Teresa, welcome to the positive sobriety podcast. Thanks for having thank us. You. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Here. Yeah, absolutely. Now you guys are in Richmond, Virginia. That's right. Okay. I wonder if you could give us, uh, first of all, uh, you're not husband and wife, is that right? (laughs) (laughs) Mother and son, but that is uh, the first question everyone asks. Okay. All right. Let's make that clear from the, from the, I picked that up early on. Okay. Mother and son. (laughs) So I I wonder if, uh, maybe we'll start with Teresa. Can you give us a little backstory? how did you wind up in this field, uh, you know, with with uh, an interest in recovery? Uh, how did recovery intersect with faith for you? What 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 is that long and winding road that brought you to where you are today? Well, I'll try to make it as short and um, abbreviated as possible because it's boring for everyone else. But I, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I grew up in a family that really desperately needed this resource. And mm-hmm. so from a very early age, um, I really was committed to um, trying to figure out how to build a family that that seemed like a healthier, uh, more functioning family where children could be safe and thrive. And um, so that was always my commitment. Um, and then the only other commitment I had was to never, ever, ever do anything in recovery. <laughs> <laughs> So we were in a a large church in Richmond, and I was working um, uh, as a volunteer in the family life ministry area, and I just sort of coordinated classes and whatnot, trying to build families. And what I observed over the course of time is that the most suffering families in our communities never showed up for these classes that I was working so hard that I thought were going to really rock their world and improve their lives. And Mm. so when... Uh, this was, a, you know, this was 20 some years ago, the Celebrate Recovery material was out. So we started as a Celebrate Recovery um, and we moved the meeting off site into an elementary school because I thought maybe the steeple was a problem. Mm. So um, we started as an eight week pilot project and um, we were still going. Wow. 
and Scott, what are, what are your memories of the early days, and you know how have you kind of gotten drawn into the swirling vortex of recovery? <laughs> There's so many different ways I could answer that question. I could probably go in a direction that would make it really awkward for everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I think, you know, um, that's a funny thing to reflect on. My memories of the early days is like, I remember, I remember mom putting in a lot of work on it. You know, like uh, she doesn't do anything halfway. I mean, she really took it seriously, like as a, as a craft, I think. And so that means I abandoned my children. No, no, (laughs) that came later. (laughs) Um, And um, she had a good team of people with her. And so we got to spend a lot of time with those people in preparation and leading up to it. And I just remember nobody knowing what was going to happen. And um, that, you know, it was like everybody was kind of diving into this thing and nobody knew it was going to happen. And I think, Mom, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think there were 200 people there the first sun, the first, I, I guess it was a Sunday yep, that you right. guys did a a service. Yeah. So I, I just we remember. set up seven chairs. <laughs> wow. At high expectations. Yeah. yeah. The way we roll. So I. I think I, you know, I remember being blown away by that. And then um, I think over time, it just became clear what a need it was. I mean, I, th- I think things are a little bit different now than they were then and that there's a lot more resources that seem to be available for integrating faith and recovery, although still maybe not as much as people would like. But mm-hmm. that seemed to be such a need like those seem to be uh, almost separate identities for people. Like there's my faith and that's over here and there's my recovery that's over here. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, And I think there's something really, really meaningful about trying to do work that allows people to feel like they are one unified person and not that they, they have a bunch of separate identities. And um, I think that's, um, maybe language that I would put to why I wanted to enter this field that I have only in retrospect. But um, I think, you know, that's how I look at, I think that's how I see it looking back. Yeah. Wow. And you are both counselors, right? So I'm um, currently getting my master's in mental health counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, well, I'll let, I'll let mom speak for herself on that. Well, and you also, so Scott went off to Fuller after undergraduate and got his MDiv with a focus in recovery ministry. Mm. Oh, in that new program out there. Well, yeah. it's, an old, it's an old program that's get Okay. Yeah. yeah um, Dale Ryan led it yeah. and others. And uh, well, Dale has always led it, but others have contributed to his great work out there. Yeah. And then he's getting this new degree. Um, Scott is. Um, and so I'm totally unqualified to do anything. Um, I, I have no credentials. I have a undergraduate degree from UVA and, uh, in, in psychology, but, um, you know, I've gotten some certifications along the way. I've certainly been a student, but no, my, uh, my experience, strength and hope lies in experience, uh, not, um, credentialing. Mm-hmm. 
But to get at the heart of your question, I think like both of us have ended up doing a lot of work uh, in particular with families. And um, I guess maybe that would look more like coaching work would be the language that would probably be most appropriate in terms of how to interact with a loved one in in uh, ways that are really helpful. Yeah. Well, reflecting on my own experience, I remember, you know, I had actually myself been in ministry, raised in church, you know, uh, and didn't walk into my first recovery meeting till I was 42 years old. And very symbolically, that was in the basement of the church. Yeah. Uh, kind of the rule was, if you want to find, uh, you know, a recovery meeting, you know, go to a church and then go to the lowest spot in the church. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, go in and go down. That's right. <laughs> and, and in the middle of the week, when you know none of the good people are there, you'll find <laughs> you'll find the losers sitting in a circle of uh, folding chairs. Well, so I had all this trepidation going in, and really felt like. You know, that felt like dying. I felt like such a loser. And then the enormous surprise was to find this spiritual vibrancy. I mean, my uh, I think that my faith was resuscitated. It was on life support when I got into that room. Yeah. Uh, and it totally just, you know, reanimated my faith and and ignited in me this desire over time. Like, how in the world do I put these two together? Mm. Yeah, 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 and and I I had a, a kind of progressive what I would call crisis of faith until a monk pointed out that it was really the loss of uh, the illusion of certainty um, <laughs> uh, when I got sober. And so, with you all being a faith community, I would imagine you've learned ways to uh, make room for people in that in that kind of a space in their, in their lives. Is that, how do you do that and be a church and, and can get people um, not get them, but uh, make room for them to be okay in that space and feel welcome. Hmm. Teresa, you want to go first? No, you go first. (laughs) Um, I was trying to buy some time. (laughs) (laughs) i didn't i didn't mean to play stump the band here i just wanted to (laughs) this this isn't going well is it we're stumped already (laughs) this is great and it's so early um i think um i think that part of you know i mean i i suppose it can't be underestimated the importance of just giving voice to your doubts and your uncertainties and the things that are unclear to you and and sometimes like i think there is such a difference between like specifically if you're thinking about like a preaching environment getting up there and approaching faith and approaching maybe even reading the reading of a particular passage or even the reading of a particular prayer as if it's very clear mm-hmm. versus uh, taking the approach of here's a passage, it's really difficult. We're wrestling through trying to figure out what it means, and there's all these things that I'm unclear about, and not trying to be the person behind the curtain, mm-hmm. right? Who has all the answers. Right. And so I think one of the things that um, I don't know how this started, and so maybe I'll pass the mic here, but I think one of the things that we do is we have a dialogue in all of our services, which make them feel not like services to people who are used to being at services. 
Um, and the audience asks questions and participates and shares thoughts. And so we kind of try to take a shared wisdom approach. And I think that avoids some of the power dynamics and, and the hierarchy and gives kind of a sense of equality. And um, in the process, I think that sort of creates some some room for wrestling and being okay wrestling. Um, I don't know, Mom, what do you think? Well, I think to just maybe just to add, I think that's true. I mean, I, I don't think we can overemphasize how weirdly we do worship. With the, <laughs> uh, with the dialogue back and forth, we don't pass a plate. Um, you know, we have stripped uh, the service of anything that we even think might trigger shame or guilt. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and I mean, we still do, we still trigger all that anyway, but we try to at least take the, the ob- obvious things out. Um, and so we're very stripped down. And I, I think maybe, I don't know if this gets at your question, but I think it does speak of what's become of us in this becoming of a recovery church community is that Scott and I had to learn that all the things that we thought were really super important our community might not even care about that much. Mm. Yeah. And then we had to accept that and say, well, what do they care about? Cause this is really, that's really a far more important thing. So I think pastors, for example, really think we think that everybody should really care about Sunday morning worship. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the show. Yeah, our guys don't care that much about that. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but they care about something that we really do care about, which is connecting and asking really hard questions about what does it mean to not only be human, but to be the apple of God's eye Mm -hmm. and still screw up all the time. What, you know, what does all that mean? And so uh, I love. I love the, I love who we are and I love the way we wrestle. And I'm really, really glad that I don't have to worry about um, the accoutrements of what we've come to think of as church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you had to give up a lot of uh, traditional, uh, I guess, ideology or expectation so that you could really meet people in what was really important to them. And it seems like many times we aren't willing to do that. It, it, it feels like to me anyway, my own bias is that um, churches will want to have something uh, in a, in a way for recovering people, but they don't want to give up. Like you said earlier, Teresa, I think you mentioned that, you know, you, uh, the, the churches previously that you served in were, were doing things in a way that they thought, um, or you thought this is what, this is what's going to rock everybody's world and really resonate with them. And it didn't. And then we have to think about why, I guess. And so I, I appreciate that you guys have kind of been able or willing to scrap and scrub the deck and just say, okay, what, is important. What is the thing that people are going to resonate with? Why are people here? How do we establish connection and not um, uh, impose expectations maybe 
things like that. I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, to addicts and those of us in recovery, theology is way down on our list of sure. things that are really important to us. Um, I'm trying to survive a day. How do you, how do you navigate that? Navigate like the priorities. Well, uh, yeah. So you're not a, um, just make sure everybody's believing right and they'll behave right. Yeah. Oh, I see. Um, well, we don't believe that. So, um, that, I mean, we don't believe that if everybody believes right, they, be- they behave right. So, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> It becomes not that hard to avoid, um, but I think maybe one of the tensions that I feel is like, you know, there's this sense of which we're accepted as we are, and we kind of aspire to be more human than we are in this moment, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, And how do you encourage people to do that without making them feel like how they are right now is not actually acceptable? And I think that is a very difficult uh, tension to live in. Somebody told us recently that um, we were not as challenging as we used to be. And <laughs> I, 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 for me, I don't want to speak for Teresa, but I think for me, that's part of this not wanting to make people feel like they have to change, but trying to create an environment where change is possible because people have hope. And people have positive connections and people are accepted and sort of believing that if we provide those things up front, then maybe people will want to become more human because they've been accepted. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So if I could deconstruct that a little bit, like I don't want any of this to sound too fancy or um, like... um, like we are actually knowing stuff because we, what we've had to do is unlearn so much, mm. right? So this isn't like us sitting around in our office coming up with great ideas. This is like us sitting in our office with our hand, hands in our head saying, gosh, I didn't know that. And I didn't know this and I didn't know the other thing. And so, you know, I think the great wisdom People have people know what they need, um, and they teach us. They're the they're the experts on what they need and who they want to be. And if they want to hang out with us in our community, there's probably some sense of belonging and commonality in terms of value and and whatnot. So we're learning from them, and they're and they're teaching us. And and sometimes it's just really hard lessons. Um, and so to the, to go back to the question about you're not challenging us as much, uh, I considered it quite the compliment, um, because what we've learned in over 20 years is telling people, I used to say this all the time, 20 years ago, we can do this, right? I, I, I probably said that every Sunday, come on, we can do this. I was like a little cheerleader mm-hmm. and, um, um, what we've learned is that, that that's not good change theory. People don't change because you cheer them on. Mm. Um, and so these principles, for example, that we're learning in techniques like motivational interviewing are giving us a different way. And so she's darn right. We aren't as challenging as we used to be because that's not helpful. Um, and I think I was 
born to cheer. I like that enthusiastic approach. Uh, I have to change that if that doesn't actually help people in their transformation process. Mm. Well, Teresa, you have really piqued my interest with that phrase, motivational interviewing. Can you expand on that a little bit? Go, Scott. <laughs> well, you said it. <laughs> She's your mom, Scott. Do as she says. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, motivational interviewing is a technique, and um, we've come to it through, um, in part, through we do a family education program on Thursday nights, which we do in partnership with um, Virginia Commonwealth University, which is also where I'm in school. And I think that um, that's where we got our first exposure to it. So it's it's a counseling technique that was developed by William Miller and Stephen Rolnick in the late 80s or early 90s. Um, and um, essentially, um, get it, we've been getting training in that. And it sort of teaches you a different way to have a conversation with people that um, helps them find their own motivation for what changes they may or may not want to make in their life. Um, so it, it can be very helpful with substance use because um, you let them take the lead rather than trying to shame somebody into change. And it kind of teaches you how to ask certain questions and pay and um, to sort of pay attention to key things that another person might say that you can emphasize that help them um, make moves to uh, becoming who they really want to be. Back to kind of what I said at the beginning is like, a lot of times people who are really, really, really steeped in their substance use, that's not necessarily who they want to be. But if you tell them not to be that person, they don't want to change. Mm -hmm. And so I think what motivational interviewing does is, is, is it helps people get clarity on how they're living and how that might be different from how they want to be living. And because of that, then somebody feels like they're invited to make change because of they want to become more integrated as a person. There you go. Mm -hmm. There you go. Yeah, recovery and integration so closely connected. Mm -hmm. If I, I follow up on a couple other words that stuck out to me as you were speaking, Scott, earlier, you talked about identifying uh, power dynamics and hierarchies uh, kind of within traditional structures and how those, you know, you, uh, you want to kind of weed those out of the recovery community. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that was one thing that was most striking to me when I first started going into the rooms of recovery was I assumed that the guy who was reading the, leading the meeting was the expert and he would always be leading the meeting and he was the guy with all the answers. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then it, and then he was, he wasn't pretending to be the expert and, uh, was leading with weakness and turns out he had his, uh, yeah, it was, it was a very confusing on the front end. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it began to undermine my long-held ambition to climb to the top of that pyramid myself to become the expert. Mm. <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how does North Star community – and that, there's another big word. I, you've used it several times. You're talking about your community that is not uh, centered on or exclusive to some big meeting on Sunday morning. How does communal life look at North Star and um, yeah, and where, what specific things have you done to make sure that things like 
you know, power structures and hierarchy that would tend to drive people away, uh, you know, are minimized. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, my first thoughts, you know, on the communal life piece, I think that's something we're always trying to figure out, um, especially right now. I mean, sure, we're, we're doing life together via Zoom like everybody else is, and I am, uh, I, I know I'm getting very fatigued. I mean, I just, like, I'm almost getting uh, triggers when I click on the Zoom logo now. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think... Um, we try to do, I think, very little where there is like a clear cut leader. And I think that when we do like classes, like we're doing on, like on Saturday nights now, we, we use as an opportunity to do classes and we're kind of doing a relationship class. And so we kind of view ourselves, I think, and I only want to speak for myself as facilitators of group conversations rather than leaders. Nice. And I think that's a lot of it. And, um, you know, and that's something that we learned from, 12 step communities and, and we do men's and women's support groups and, and, um, and so, and we invite people to, to step in and lead their own meetings if they want. Uh, we invited in, uh, we've invited in groups to do NA or, uh, NA and Narnon meetings and AA meetings and smart recovery meetings in our building and just give them license to do whatever they want. And, um, we try not to have a lot of rules and guidelines and those are kind of my initial thoughts, you know, about community building and, and, and mom has certainly been the um, yeah, better's better is probably not the right word to use, but she's certainly been the better community builder between the two of us. So, I mean, she probably has more to contribute on this than I do. Yeah. What would you say, Teresa? How, talk, talk about community life and what you've learned about, you know, something that isn't necessarily event based or meeting based. Uh, and, and does not rely on uh, a hard-charging expert leader. <laughs> Thank God for that. That hard-charging yeah. thing. I'm, I'm too old for it. Um, well, this this idea, I think, of um, we just need each other and um, building partnerships. And I'm sort of wired to believe that um, – and always be on the look for somebody who knows uh, how to do something a little better than I do or, or whatever. Um, and uh, so it, it just came really naturally to us organically to build partnerships with therapists, with smart recovery, with mutual aid societies, with VCU, you know, the local college that had Rams in recovery with uh the treatment facility down in the city. And I think, I think when you build those partnerships, one of the skill sets you have to learn is um, how to uh, say, okay, we all want the same thing. We're shooting in the general, our, our arrows are shooting in the general area of a target, but um, we've got all sorts of different ideas about the technique for how to use it, how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that requires developing all these humbling, uh, occasionally humiliating uh, uh, ways of being in the world. And if you if you do that, then it just changes the way you are in your community. And it kind of is a byproduct of this value of, um, hey, guys, we don't ha- I mean, 
20 years ago to say that, that there were many different ways to do recovery was blasphemy. Right. Sure. Yeah. Right? yeah. right. Yeah. We forget so quickly. Right. And I, I, I'd like to imagine or hope that we were instrumental in our community in being an early adopter to this idea of, hey, guys, look around. Nobody's winning. We're all losing separately the battle of recovery. Look at our opioid fi- figures. Right. Um, so if we're all losing, let's at least go down together. And, <laughs> right. And, and so I don't know. I think that that just sort of, created um it just sort of created something lovely in terms of the tone of our community mm. yeah wow um well tell us about the nacr the national association of christian recovery tell me how that um distinguishes itself from uh north star and then and and what that exists to be <laughs> what's it intended to exist to be and what it is Uh um yeah uh well of course i love the organization it was started by uh a long time ago decades ago by dale ryan and others and they just did a masterful job of creating this thing they had this vision for reaching out and helping churches um develop uh, resources for recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, They had a vision that was way ahead of their time. It was a vision of uh, getting recovery out of the basement and integrating it into the life of the church. Um, And um, um, I became uh, executive director sometime around 2011 or 12, and the mission has remained uh, largely the same. so uh, we've spent the last year uh, writing materials, um, and that's what our focus has been in the last year in terms of getting those resources out to people. Uh, I find it to be uh, exciting and frustrating at the same time because what's been amazing to me is the turnover in recovery ministry within the church. So it's been hard to establish a foothold that allows for building on your relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, is that is that because uh, people get so burnt out working in this area in ministry, do you think? Or what do you think that's about? Uh, well, Teresa? so I did a study last year um, and kind of hunted and pecked my way through a big long list of people who showed up in 2010 for a national recovery conference that I was part of in California. Mm -hmm. They're all gone except for about three of them. Mm. Uh, You can't even hardly find the contact information in the church. Church secretaries don't even know that recovery ministries exist, even when I know that they're having them in the building. Right. Uh, It's super frustrating. Um, I do think people get burned out. I think also people get disenfranchised from the church. They don't. Yeah. In, in, integration is very hard. I've rarely seen it really work effectively. And so this organization that's founded on helping churches resource themselves, you discover that um, the church proper itself isn't necessarily looking for those resources. 
Mm-hmm. And they are not, by and large, funding their recovery ministry so that their recovery ministries can go to cool conferences mm-hmm. or even buy resources. Right. So um, I guess you can tell that that proves to be frustrating. And so we sort of had tried to to um, move aside, move move around those barriers and develop a more robust online uh, presence because that is a way that that disconnected recovery people can get connected and they can get access online. So that's what we're moving towards is a, a more robust online presence. Yeah. What would you say, Teresa and Scott, to someone who says, we want to have a recovery ministry in our church? Um or we want to be known uh, for reaching out to recovering people. We want to be known for being a safe place, but there's reluctance to change the personality driven paradigm, or there's reluctance to change some of the things that might uh, be the sacred cows that, that all of us experience and churches have. And, um, what would you say to a church that says, well, we want to, we want to have a recovery ministry. Tell us how to, tell us how to do that. Teresa. (laughs) I just talked. (laughs) (laughs) Are we trading off? Um, Um, Well, well, I'd love to hear what Scott would say um, (laughs) about this, but I think, um, I think I would, ask them some questions like, um, tell me more. Um, do some motivational interviewing. In other uh, do, some, <laughs> do some motivational interviewing. Uh-huh. Ask, them, yeah. ask them what they want. Um, because if you want to be successful and you want to do outreach, I always, that's a triggery word for me because it, it, I hear increasing numbers, right? Mm-hmm. In a church that feels like they're going to be more helpful. And I would ask instead the question, are you prepared for the majority of your real depth and spiritual wisdom to be in that recovery ministry? Wow. Are you prepared yeah. for that? You know, yeah. um, do you want to reach out or do you want to do outreach? Those are two different things. Mm. And, and if you want to reach out, then do you know what your recovery community needs? And they may not necessarily need you building a recovery ministry. They they may need you just to give them space to do what they're already doing extremely effectively. Wow. Um, they they don't they they don't maybe need what you think you're giving people in in the church situation. And I mean no disrespect by that because it's it's just a different need, and it's. And of course, this obviously isn't for everybody, but um, I, I would, I would try to MI myself right through that conversation. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. What would you say, Scott? Yeah, I think I would maybe approach this differently than I, than maybe I used to, because we do have these conversations with churches, you know, particularly locally from time to time, and. Um, I think, yeah, I think, um, (laughs) sorry, I can hear my daughter screaming and I'm getting distracted. No worries. Um, 
I think that it's important to figure out, um, yeah, I guess like, I think part of your question was maybe a little bit of skepticism about motivation. Like, is this going to be a thing that we can, are we going to put together a thing that we can brag about? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm certainly skeptical of that, but, um, as well. And at the same time, like, I think it's important, um, I, you know, I just feel so passionately about not discouraging people, even if I'm skeptical of their motivations. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think there is a lot of value in asking questions, both about why you want to do it, but also like what you're capable of doing right now. And then, um, encouraging people to start small and see where that takes you. Cause I think that, um, if you're not willing to start small, then there may be some kind of motivations getting in the way of being helpful. Um, cause I, I mean, you can always start small and then build. And then if you start small and something doesn't work, then you can let it fizzle. Right. But like trying to put some small, you know, I, I think starting with support groups is good. If you have somebody who can, who can run and facilitate a group and most churches have somebody who's sat in groups before. Um, so I think if I were going to try to give somebody a first step, it would be start some kind of support group. And it doesn't even have to be AA or NA. It could be a, it, it could be a, um, you know, it could be a grief group. It could be a, um, a group for people who've been through divorce. It could, you know, it could be any number of things, but I think starting with a group and seeing kind of who shows up and then, and then seeing what you learn from that and going from there. Mm, yeah. It's amazing what happens when uh, there is space and time and value and humble leadership in the direction of authentic presence and authentic communication within the church. Um, uh, where everything's on the table, nothing's out of bounds. I don't have to be anybody or even believe anything specifically in order to be present in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love your uh, description, Scott, about uh, you know of of recovery as becoming more human. Mm-hmm. That's I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah. Well, North Star Community Church sure sounds like, uh, or North Star Community, do you use the word church? What do you use? How do you describe your, the, how, how do you billboard the place? <laughs> it just says North Star Community on the signs, but uh, we don't tend to correct people. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. North Star Community, it sounds like a wonderful place, a welcoming place, a healing place. A place of, uh, yeah, of, of help where people come to get help and give help. Yeah. Sounds like a place of spiritual growth. We hope so. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, it makes me want to, makes me want to visit someday. Please oh, do. Come visit us. We, we love yeah. visitors. Well, thank you so much. This has been an engaging uh, and inspiring and thought provoking conversation. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. Well, thank you. And, uh, and how can our listeners get, in, how can they get in touch with you? Those who want to pursue the conversation, uh, what's the best way for them to reach you? Probably, uh, via email. So it's just our first, my, you know, Scott at Northstarcommunity.com. 
Um, and our website's northstarcommunity.com, and there's a contact form on there. So you can either send directly through the website or uh, or just put our name at our domain. And Teresa's is the same. It's T-E-R-E-S-A, not with an H, um, at northstarcommunity.com as well. And guys, how um, can they find out more about the NACR and get materials or updates or anything like that that you might be um, putting out so they know how to how to incorporate maybe some of that into what they're they're trying to launch or do in their own yeah. communities. Yeah, very simply go to the website. It's uh, uh, www.nacr.org and you can sign up for getting on the newsletter or my gosh, you could root around in that website in quarantine ad infinitum and find material. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be a great use of time because I want to plug the fact that the conferences that I've attended that you guys have hosted have been, uh, I mean, they've been invaluable to me. I, I have, yes, absolutely. They're well done, but the, the people that you've brought from so many perspectives and so many areas with great cutting edge information and the freedom to explore many ways uh, to experience uh, recovery and sobriety uh, was just um, just super helpful to me. So I encourage people to use some of this uh, downtime to explore that website. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. There's there's a lot of good stuff out there, so check it out. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And Nate, I, I'm so glad that Scott and Teresa McBean uh, agreed to join us today because I have been, like I said, the the recipient of their good work, both with North Star Community and uh, the National Association of Christian Recovery. But I I know that you and I have experienced um, some wonderful things in the way the church embraced us in our recovery, and then some really frustrating things in the way uh, maybe we were understood or misunderstood or the way the church tried to approach a recovery program. Um, And I just love that they are doing a model out there that is not personality driven. It's not about um, believing all the right things. It's about meeting people in their recovery where they are and, and really trying to, I loved the point Teresa made about uh, you can either reach out or do outreach, but that's not the same thing. Yeah. You know, I just loved uh, the gentle, uh, thoughtful, uh, humble, and engaging and open way that they communicated. I, I, I love interviewing people who don't, who aren't cocksure that they have all the answers to every question. Yeah. That's a sign yeah, of progress absolutely. in recovery. That's because, you know, of- in recovery, that, I mean, we have to come to new conclusions in many ways. Yeah. Many yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah. Because many times we've gotten the wrong answers just because we're asking the wrong questions. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, 
listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Any reaction to this episode, any suggestions for future episodes, issues you'd like to see covered, people you'd like to hear from, you can always reach us at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. All right. Another good one and uh, more to come until next week. I'm Nate. I'm David. We're your pals on the positive sobriety podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 